Hey everyone, it's Imogen here from Squarepeg. So there was a game that I used to play when I was a kid that I just loved. And I'm almost certain you've played it too. It's sometimes called the Combination Man or the Exquisite Corpse. And there's a version called Paper Telephone, which is writing based. The premise of the game is the same, but my favorite is the drawing version. The idea is that you're drawing a person with a friend, but that you don't get to see what each other draws. So if I was to start, I'd draw the head of a person, fold that paper over and give it to you. And you might draw the next part of the person, say the arms, and then you'd fold that over and you give it back and so on and so forth until the last of us would draw the feet. And then you'd unravel it all and you'd have this fully formed person that was a jumble of both yours and your friend's perfect person. I haven't thought of this game in years, but it occurred to me as I was prepping for today's podcast. Because if I was to put the Square Peg team in a room and ask them to play this game drawing their perfect founder, I think collectively we'd draw our guest today. Alad Wallach is the co-founder and CEO at ADARC, a medical-grade AI company that's helping radiologists in hospitals identify and prioritize critical abnormalities like brain bleeds and fractures in patients. And the reason I think our team would design him is because he's this extraordinary blend of characteristics we love to find. And on today's episode, you'll learn why. Meet Elad. My parents were a typical, I heard it's called STEM family. So if you know the Russian Jew subtype, that's the typecast of my parents. So Russian Jews, they came from nothing. You know, they were very poor in Russia. They were in this communist environment, right? And all the family ran. They have stories from World War II, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of the big takeaway or the big cultural value they give you is A, academics, go really deep into academics, physics, math, learn. It's worth every penny. So uh, like my parents always tell me, like we didn't have money for toys, but we bought books and private lessons. That was the only thing we were allowed to invest. And this very culture of like working very hard to get what you want. It's a very achiever kind of mentality and every generation growing on top of the other one. So that was kind of the mentality. So they kind of, they push you to the limit. So, you know, some discipline, but a lot, a lot of support and a big emphasis on education. So, you know, I've played a piano since I was six, always math and physics at the forefront. Like those are the, the important things in life. And I was growing up a bit, as you can imagine, with that education, a bit nerdy. So I was really into, you know, computers and and physics and science. And just as Elad was really into science, so was his dad. Elad's father worked at IBM. It was the early days of computer science, and he spent his professional life building algorithms to use in the real world, like how to detect if someone's signature was real or a fraud on a bank check. And at the end of his day, he'd come home and share these stories with Elad. And this is where he first learned that the usability of a product and the environment in which it operates is key to making pure technology work. He was always telling me the stories of how he was working on an algorithm, but at the end of the day, the breakthrough came from the real life. I really remember vividly one cool story that he was developing this cash register thing for for the check signatures. And they had this massive project they were working on for a cash register company in Texas. It was the, the make or break project for IBM and something went wrong. Like the day before the testing, something went wrong and they didn't know what happened. And they tested it and tested it and everybody panicked. And eventually what they found out was that the air conditioner broke and it was very hot. So a lot of people connected fence to the same machine that their analytics came from 
And because of that, there was like disturbance in the electricity, which made all of their algorithm go to crap. So it was interesting. I learned about the fact that real life, like the actual considerations, eventually really impact the algorithms and stuff like that. As we've heard before, Israeli citizens are required to join the army for a few years post high school. Both Mika from Fiverr and Shimon from Climacells spoke about how impactful their experience in the IDF was. And while we've mentioned some of the elite parts of the IDF, such as the Air Force, there has been one notable exception. It's a unit in the IDF called Talpiot. It's where Alad and his co-founders met, and Talpiot is often described as the Mensa of the IDF. And I want to explain just a little of the history and structure of the program so that you can appreciate why even the comparison with Mensa perhaps undercommunicates how elite Talpiot is. Okay, a little history. Talpiot was founded by two academic professors just after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, where Israel was caught off guard by its neighbors. The professors who eventually founded Talpiot worked at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and pitched the creation of a new unit to the chief of staff at the IDF. The idea was to create the most elite military research and development unit in the world, thereby giving Israel a quality advantage over its rivals in strategic and technical capabilities. The program launched in 1979, putting a small cohort of academically gifted students through a nine-year course, beginning with a double degree in pure maths, physics, or computer science. It has been so successful over the years at producing near-geniuses that its reputation has only grown, and to get in is difficult. They test you across several disciplines. First of all, they test you, you know, kind of IQ tests. They don't bind to the regular IQ paradigm, but it tests you a lot in physics and math. So that's one big part of the test. And it's a very interesting test because, for example, one part of it is that they give you like a lecture and then they test you on it immediately. So they want to see how fast you retain the information. You read an article and then you get tested on it. And then there is this interview where you're sitting in a room and people just throw random questions from you know physics and math at you. And there is also the more human aspect to it, because one of the lessons learned from this program is that what's important in nowadays to really lead innovation, it's not just to be you know smart. It's not enough. And you have to know how to lead the system from within. So they really try and test how you, you, know, how you interact with others. So you, they do kind of situational testings and interviews just to see if you, you know, have the potential to perform well on that aspect. And from the 10,000 or so pool of applicants, Alad and his two eventual co-founders were chosen. So Tapiot is an extensive training program. It's almost three and a half years where you both do your first bachelor's degree in physics, math, and computer science, but you also get trained a lot in the, on the Ministry of Defense and the military. So they kind of give you a taste of everything there is to know. You basically study all day, all night. It's like you, you sleep for six hours, and besides that, that, that's basically what you do. Obviously, there are a lot of amazing you know, adventures. It was a, a really great experience, but it's a very intensive experience. Also, frankly, emotionally, it's an intensive experience because we were all kind of the smartest kids in our class and it was kind of trivial. But then you're in a group where everybody's the smartest kid in class and you're not the smartest anymore by a long shot. You see people, you're like, he's a genius. What am I doing here? And it's just crazy. It's such a shaping experience. So the journey for me, actually, I matured a lot through the program. 
And one transition that I made was that before the program, I was really that, I would say, geeky, nerdy type of person. But, you know, I wasn't really thinking about leadership or management or anything like that. I was really into science more. And the program really changed my perception on what it is that I want, what it is that I can do. And for that, I can be just so grateful because it really helped shape both my ambitions and uh, my confidence in myself. One of the components parts of the Talpiat program that seems especially geared towards producing future founders is that not only do you study a double degree, Talpiot then places you within the IDF specifically to solve problems for other units, almost as if they are technical consultants deployed within the IDF. I eventually went to be in the Air Force, but I, I didn't know that I wanted to be in the Air Force. What I did know is that I want to be in a location where there are some other Talpiot graduates, but not too much because I really wanted to make an impact, you know, and I didn't want to go with 40 other people have been. And, you know, those are amazing locations in the Ministry of Defense. But I really wanted to be in somewhere, yes, there are there other people. It's like an innovative place. There is a good environment, but there's still a lot of room to improve. So that was kind of what attracted me in this position in the Air Force, which was kind of a combination of deep technology, doing AI, computer vision, all of that. But also it took a lot out of you in the project management side. Basically, my role was actually a very fun role. I had to walk around the Air Force and meet people and ask them, what are their pain points? And if I find a pain point that I can help solve, just try and solve it. And it was a very fun role because initially you don't have a very clear-cut project. You're on the search for finding operational leads and then creating the project around that. Obviously, a lot of it is confidential, so I can't talk too much. But I would say a lot of it was on processes that weren't good enough and ability to extract insights from data that took them a long time and made uh, sub-optimized decision-making, let's say. And, you know, with big organization like the Air Force, every ability to create higher efficiency or effectiveness has a massive impact down the road. And the lessons he learned at Talpiot beyond the project management and technical skills were also foundational for building a startup. In Talpiot, I think my perception of a leader opened up. I found out, A, that a leader doesn't know all the answers necessarily. It's about driving towards a certain direction. Even if you don't know where we're going to end up or how, it's a process. And it's okay to not know everything in advance. Another thing that I learned was to put a massive importance and focus on people and the people around you. That leaders have to continuously focus on building up the people that they work with. And that half of the work is, is actually letting somebody else do the work, but making sure that that somebody is, is best positioned to do that work. And the last thing that they kind of put an emphasis on is on not taking the reality for granted. I think that was a big one. So do what you think needs to be done. Don't think about what there is. And they taught us this criticism or ability to see something different. When they show you the whole Ministry of Defense, like there is a summer course, they literally show us tons of units in the Ministry of Defense and what are the problems, how did they shape up, how did they evolve. And once you see kind of the system from this holistic view, uh, you start learning that any system could be improved and you just need to develop the skill set to find how you can improve it. Elad's belief that problem solving can happen effectively, even in the most complex organizations through technical know-how and a brilliant team is foundational to him as an entrepreneur. And it explains, I think, his eventual willingness to take on the healthcare industry, a notoriously complex beast, and think, 
I can make a difference here. Though leaving the military wasn't a straightforward decision. I had a really good time in the military. I grew a lot as a person. I was offered amazing positions. And even upon leaving, I've had a unique offer to a unique program and, and a great position. But, you know, I remember I was thinking about it over the weekend. I was kind of in my bed. And then I said, oh, I just want to open up a startup so much. I need to do this. And frankly, opening a startup for me, a big part of it was about the culture. I was reading, I love uh, to read uh, books on random topics. I was reading a book about Greek philosophy at the time. And I believe it was a quote that Socrates said that the biggest happiness in life is to live with people that have the same philosophical principles or something like that. And really kind of struck a chord with me in the sense that I really wanted to have a group of people. We're driving towards the same purpose. We have the same set of values. So I was really attracted by that part of opening a startup. And, you know, that's how I made the decision. By the time Alad left, he was the head of AI and algorithmic research at the Air Force. But lucky for him, he wasn't setting out alone. Over his time at Talpiot, Alad had met hundreds of brilliantly technical and capable people. But he particularly bonded with two friends, Michael and Guy. I knew them very well. I actually lived with both of them. So I lived with Guy for seven or eight years straight, so he knows me well. And Michael, I lived with Michael for about a year in Jerusalem as well. So I know all their uh, kinks and <laughs> yes, Michael wanted to do something with cell phones and he literally did his master's in medical image processing. So he wanted to do something. So I was like, Michael, no, no, we're going to do this. I'm obviously joking. We, we kind of, we made the decision together. A guy joined a bit later, a week later, he was on his way to getting his, I believe it was his visa with Google. So he was literally on his way to San Francisco for Google headquarters there. And I called him. I didn't know where he was. His plane was delayed. So he was in transit in like the UK or something. It was like, hey, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Guy, we're opening something. Are you in? He's like, uh, yeah, I'm in. And then he went there, terminated his position and, you know, came back. It was just look of the century. And for a while, they weren't exactly sure what it was they'd left their prestigious, well-paying and interesting jobs to build. But they zeroed in on healthcare. It seemed to tick two important boxes. Obviously, we knew nothing about healthcare. We just wanted to do something there. Two main reasons. The logical one is that I felt it's an underserved market where deep technology has a real advantage. So we really didn't want to compete with two guys in a garage or anything like that. And we felt we have the advantage with deep AI knowledge, ability to understand operational needs, et cetera. The more emotional reason is that we really wanted to feel an impact. And the situation right now that we're, frankly, on a daily basis, getting emails and texts from physicians that we impact the patient's lives. It's worth everything in this space. It's slow and it's terrible and you're fighting regulation and bureaucracy like you never imagined, but this makes it uh, very worthwhile. And with healthcare chosen, they started to thrash out ideas. So we knew it's healthcare. We actually had a doc join in the relatively early days, Dr. Galyaniv. He was amazing, really knowledge about medicine. And at those early days, we, we had this massive whiteboard we just started writing down ideas one by one. And you know, we started thinking where we could make a difference. 
and we just we used that there is um, a framework called the Lean Startup, which listeners might know. We just started scratching one by one, like every idea that didn't work out. And this wasn't the first by a long shot, this fifth or something. And we just started scratching ideas one by one until we reached this. And we started speaking with docs, mainly in the US. And all of them told us, look, bring me something like this yesterday. And then we knew it's something meaningful. And the problem that they discovered was that a particular type of physician in a hospital was under siege. I want to emphasize that it's really, they're doing a remarkable job compared with the conditions. I think it's amazing. But with what's happened to all of us, A, you're making more mistakes and it just happens. And B, you know, queues lengthen, so you don't reach patients on time. In the US, it's actually reasonable, but let's say European countries, you could wait weeks to get a report, weeks to get a report if you're an outpatient. Imagine if you have something critical and you have, it happens. Okay, so not 20% of the cases, but like two, 3% of the cases have critical findings. How do you deal with that? So you get late results, lower quality, a lot of burnout and fatigue, a lot of burnout. That's a really high burnout specialty. And what Alad, Michael, and Guy realized is that they could apply their medical imaging and algorithm knowledge to build software that could help radiologists. And so they got to work building software that plugged into a radiologist's machine to review a patient's scans as they came in, identify issues such as stroke or a pulmonary embolism or a fracture, and then flag them in the system so that radiologists could prioritize these patients first. In the simplest form, it's like the smartest triage system in the world. And then the challenge became, how do they start to connect with hospitals to try their algorithms in the real world? It turns out, with a little good fortune and a big misunderstanding. We really believed in creating mock-ups and not just validating with, you know, words and presentations. So we really started very fast to create those mock-ups. I actually, <laughs> it's a fun, funny story from the early days. So we created this mock-up. So the mock-up, just to imagine how it looks, you have a radiology viewer and you have a lot of pictures with kind of markings on them. Okay. So we kind of said, imagine you have something like this for a case. Would it help you? Like, what would be the value? All of that. So that would be basically that's the demo we created, and we will let them, you know, scroll around and play with the viewer and see see what they think. So that was basically the validation process. One of the docs we presented to, I was a pretty prominent member of the community, and he just really liked it. And he told me, guys, I'm gonna help you, and he kind of connected us to people. He was, and he was just such a great, great person. We're friends until this day. And as time evolved, I asked him, you know. There are a lot of radiology companies. Why did you, you know, get connected with us and try to help us more than anybody else? Told me, you guys, you finally showed me something that's working, something that's real. So yeah, obviously I didn't correct him, but that was uh, that was his perception. So it was a pretty good mock-up. And with the connections in place, they had to start earning the trust of hospitals and physicians that they wanted to work for. So look, developing the product initially was a very involved process, but getting it in was, <laughs> was actually longer and more complex. Obviously, we continue to develop it along the way. But what we learned is that you need to earn a hospital's trust. That's key. And especially in the early days. So now we're well known. It's much more easy for us to get in. You know, they can call their friends that they're using us. It's real. But at that point in time, we're like three guys from Israel who knows us and definitely who trust us with something as sensitive as data and getting into their system. So it was a very iterative process of earning their trust. 
So every hospital, the early days, it was a long vetting process. We gave them the software kind of to test accuracy. So they always wanted to know how it works. Does it really work? Is it robust? And we had to kind of prove every small thing that we did, we had to prove. In one of our first sites, Cedar sinai much before we installed the software for clinical use, we kind of gave them this platform where they can view cases offline, but like see the results of the AI on those cases. And we really invested in this, you know, great environment for validation. They learned to trust us as an organization. Like we're serious, we're professional. We know what we're doing. They're in good hands. And I think that was the key in a lot of those early, early days. The computer that Alad and the ADOC team installed at Cedar sinai which by the way of context is consistently ranked in the top 10 for hospitals in the US, it also had this really cool feature. The computer had a microphone that directly dialed one of the three co-founders if anyone had a question about the platform or the results. This one decision to install a microphone into their prototype had the direct benefit of being both a phenomenal way to build trust, but also a near daily hit of user feedback. For the first two years, Michael and Guy, so the three founders, our phones were automatically connected to the support system. It was so funny because we didn't know. So whenever we got like an anonymous call, we answered like it was a support call. So Guy had this crazy story. He was in his Friday evening dinner, like with the family. It was Passover, okay? Like imagine you a big family. He's getting an anonymous call. He's running to another room. It's like, ADOC support system, hello? <laughs> and uh, yeah. And that was actually a first support call, so good catch there. And with the relationship built, hospitals started to go live with their first FDA-approved algorithm to detect acute injuries in the head. I remember the excitement of getting the first case actually through the system. It was amazing because it's so much work and you kind of cross your fingers. <laughs> and then day, you know, everything breaks when it's in production, but it actually came through. And we kind of got the log on it. It was a really celebratory part of the company's existence. ADOC is now being used by some of the biggest and best hospitals in the world. And they regularly get messages from their customers from the front line of healthcare, radiologists, nurses, and administrators who say, without your product, my patient may have died. Here's one. So our product focus right now is on acute findings. So things that are really critical in nature, time-sensitive, brain bleeds, fractures, pulmonary embolism, strokes, things you don't want to have. I always tell people, I wish you never use our system, but those are really time-sensitive findings. One of the critical things is the ability to prioritize critical patients. To give you one example, there was a patient coming in for elective care. So imagine nobody knows you're having anything urgent. Nobody treats you as anything urgent. You know, you could wait for weeks practically. And that patient came in Friday, 5 p.m. So like nobody would look at us until Monday for sure. Okay. So that was like the end of the day. Nobody's trying. And we then flagged that case and they found for that patient a massive PE, like a massive life-threatening, don't go anywhere PE. The physician actually sent us a text message telling us we saved the patient's life and she thought we wanted to know. And at the end of the day, that's what's exciting about all of this. Several million patients got better care due to the work of the team. And I think it's something that you can't, I I didn't imagine it's going to be this way or so quick. And at the toughest times, you know, you're having a bad negotiation or like something bad is happening. There's the things that really keeps motivation up. So it's the people that at the end of the day we impact. And most of them have no idea. That patient, I'm sure she had no idea 
that her life was saved by an artificial intelligence software. I think us knowing that made an impact is enough. You may have noticed that we haven't yet touched on regulation as part of this conversation, but we must because it's a critical hurdle for all founders who are building products for use in the medical setting. ADOC currently has five FDA-cleared and CE-marked products covering issues such as brain bleeds, fractures, and pulmonary embolism, with another in the process of investigation. And to date, they've analyzed over 3.5 million scans, notifying radiologists 870,000 times. And the lad's advice for navigating the regulations is simple, but hard to do once you've started building. Most companies have the product market fit. For healthcare companies, you have the product market regulation fit. And my advice to Medtech founders would be start with regulation. Many people just think it's kind of a topic for later down the road. No, no. It has so many critical implications to your product and sales strategy that can be started. Like you can't think about product markets there without thinking about regulation. We knew from day one, we're going to have the tightest security possible, really strong quality standards. We're going to be regulated. So we want to do it the best way we can. So I would say those are the two important things. And beyond regulation, his advice for medtech founders, though it's also applicable broadly, is to consider the requirements of success in your industry and then adapt to them. In healthcare, which is kind of old school, the first piece of advice is straight down the line. Be very professional in everything you do. So us as Israel, you're not necessarily used to it, but it's important in the small things and how you write and summarize emails and not having typos. Knowing what you say and do in the IT conversations and the security specific, like they need to know pretty good hands. And it sounds trivial, but when first we did IT calls, we, we had no ideas, you know, what are the good VM specs, what may frighten them, how to talk about VPN, how to talk about security. So you really have to focus or put organizational resources on learning how to handle those conversations in the best way. So learning how to treat things professionally. The other point of advice that I would give is to put a massive emphasis on customer success. It's true for a lot of enterprise, but especially for healthcare. You would think that you build this great product and automatically people would know how to use it and how to measure value and all of that. They have no idea. Those are super complex systems. And in healthcare especially, the impact is very downstream. So if a radiologist, for example, reads a patient better, that's good. But the question is, How does that impact the patient? The impact is downstream. It's because then when the neurosurgeon goes to do his stroke treatment, he does it faster. So understanding the process is critical. And for me, the customer success role is really understanding and taking something which is an algorithm product, but building a use case out of it and building a solution to a specific problem that you can measure. So that is for me a good customer success. And I think it's very, very critical. We actually have a ratio of one-to-one customer success to sales. And our first hire in the States have been actually our head of customer success. This point for me is an important one, matching sales to success and keeping churn low. But hiring people well into all roles is challenging. And it's something we hear founders often speak about. Here's a large take. There are three tools that I use. One of them is language. So creating language around cultural values is really important. 
So for example, you know, uh, I'm using uh, Kaizen a lot, which is something that a lot of people will know. So continuous learning and continuous improvement. So I'm using the word Kaizen that helps. Uh, we have an ADOC term called uh, creative effectiveness. It's kind of like 80-20 on steroids. So instead of just doing the effective thing, you think out of the box to get the effective thing. So make sure that you have the spirit to stop, think about what you're doing to find the, you know, really creative breakthroughs. You could really do the 80-20 that may not seem obvious at first. So language, I think, is a really strong tool. The other tool is a lot of leading by example and communicating that. That's something I learned that I didn't do enough at the early days. So whenever I do something that I think adheres to a cultural value that I want to maintain, I just communicate that strongly. And, you know, if you give positive feedback to somebody about a cultural value, make sure you do it as publicly as possible. So that that's another thing. And now we're even at the stage where we have a cultural values document. Keeping your startup or soccer team aligned and motivated is also a challenge. Alad has three simple tips for maintaining a strong culture. Language, behavior modeling, and a cheat sheet. It's very hard. You always have to balance between hiring for experience versus hiring for potential. We had much better experience in the company when hiring, let's say, for potential. So really, really smart people that have good cultural fit typically can learn the job, but it it changes over time. But I think you want to have a good mix of people that bring a lot of knowledge into the organization versus people that were really hungry, ambitious, smart, and, you know, can learn the role. For me, building the right team is like building soccer team, you sometimes need to have like really strong people in offense, let's call them the, the potential, and you need to have some defensive players as well, which are more of the knowledge. So you need to kind of get, have a good mix. We invested in ADOC in 2019, leading their $26 million Series B round, and we loved the team right away. A lot, Michael and Guy spoke about each other with such genuine respect. It was hard not to be totally charmed by them immediately. And founders that straddle both the startup and medical realms and raise venture funding are still comparatively rare. So Alad and I spent some time talking about their fundraising journey. And Alad's initial problem with the first round of capital was that they didn't seem to fit into anyone's investment mandate sweet spot. It was really hard to get the first round of financing. There are multiple reasons why it was tough, but one of it is digital health wasn't a thing back then. And a lot of uh, funds didn't think they can invest in healthcare. So they were very hesitant. So a lot of funds kind of told us, if you get another healthcare fund, we may be interested, but you should, you know, you should do it first. But looking back, he thinks they mostly made the right decisions with the exception of one the MVP they built to show investors. Every line of code that we did develop and we did do a lot of work on that was wasted. And why was that wasted? Because nobody cared. We were a freaking group of Telpiod graduates. Everybody believed I can do, like I can do everything or at least they believed I can do everything. Okay, nobody questioned that. They seriously questioned me about, can I really bring business? Can I get out of the lab? Can I sell this to hospitals? Do you know the market? That's what they question me on. So the first thing I always tell entrepreneurs the beginning when they build out the team, you know, think what you're missing and what are you going to be questioned on when you're doing the funding round? Because nobody questioned anything about the tech. And frankly, it's very hard to test it either way. So in those early days, people mostly cared about the business. 
And when we understood that, then we started rolling because then we learned what the assets we need to create. We need to create, you know, LOIs from hospitals. We need to get understanding of the market. We need to get buy-in from radiologists, get more radiology from the team, scientific advisory board. Like get out of the lab. That's the thing that we're looking for. And eventually we're very fortunate to get an offer from one investor, which as you know, automatically creates a domino effect. So we got like seven offers in a week. It's such a roller coaster. I remember us sitting there thinking, are we going to get invested? Maybe we should do like a smaller seed round and then do that like the week after like seven off. It was so bizarre. Eventually we chose uh, to go with Magma. And the reason why we chose to go with them, we really felt a good cultural fit. We felt they would be really good partners for the road. What I learned since is the importance of getting board members that make the board more of your home versus an environment you need to manage, right? There's a difference. You know, I'm jumping to the last round where we joined forces with SquarePeg. I think that was evident. And, and we, had, we had other offers in that, obviously, in that round as well, some well-known funds, but we just felt that the connection with the team was so strong and the alignment on the vision was so strong that we knew that we were going to have good partners for the road. I remember that Dan was asking me during the due diligence process, he wanted to ask me about the culture in the company. He wanted to speak with people about the culture of the company. And I was so impressed by that. Like Nobody else cared. Nobody asked. Nobody, nobody wanted to know. Or, you know. People asked me about metrics, about the market, et cetera, et cetera. He asked me about culture. And that, that said a lot. So it's picking people that put a lot of emphasis on, on people, a lot of emphasis on vision. I'm seeing it during the pandemic. And, you know, it is a crisis mode for the whole ecosystem. Luckily for us, we're relatively in a good position. But still, I see the different reactions from investors. And this shows you picked correctly when you picked based on those personality traits. Just as Talpiot was a huge learning curve for a lot, so too has been building a startup. I asked him to take us through some of his biggest lessons. We've had such journey. So first of all, I learned to be, I don't have to call it apologetic about selling software. So at the beginning, it kind of looked like magic to me. I was very thankful for every hospital that got my software in. It was like, oh my God, that's, that's so nice of you to install my software for free. But uh, I was very thankful that they were giving us a chance. And it was very hard for me to sell at first because it was this mindset of, I'm grateful that they're getting me in. But now I've learned how to balance that more and understand that I'm giving a lot of value and it's more than okay to ask a lot in return because I'm giving a lot and getting a lot. And I think that was a big mind shift as a company, but for me specifically to grow. The other thing is learning to handle a bigger organization. And it's, it shifts the dynamics. So as a CEO, I was used to at the early days to you know everybody and talk with everybody and be able to communicate and message. And now we're much bigger. It's funny, you know, you think you're the CEO, you have control of everything. Oh, absolutely. Hell no, right? I have very little control on my executives. That's my portion of power. And learning how to do that well, how to still, you know, how to influence organization, how to not get lost in all the details, how to get my managerial sense of where I need to dive more deeply and speak with the person that is doing the job and where I should, you know, take my hands off and say, guys, run with it and solve it. And the other thing which I learned, which is interesting, I would say it's uh, the power of sometimes being unreasonable. It's something a bit bizarre, but at the beginning, I was very much, you know, in listening mode and thinking through problems together. And I still am much more like that in my nature. 
But at some point in time, you just learn that you sometimes need to be demanding and not listen to reasons or justifications. You just need to say, I need this done this way and let the people solve it. And I was astounded sometimes. I first thought about this model, probably going to laugh, but like when you think about, you know, mobster films, so you think about mobster film, they don't care. Like they're saying you did it or you didn't. And if you didn't do it, I'm just going to kill you. And I don't care what's the reason or what's the justification. So obviously I'm not, that's not my way of management, but, but I think understanding that sometimes at the end of the day, I learned, I can't go into all the details. Like I, I just can't go into all the small nooks and crannies. And sometimes you give people like a goal that looks unachievable. If you give them, you know, the right motivation and support, they can achieve it. And uh, I was astounded by achievements by our team, like really astounded by not getting into the details and trying to understand, but sometimes telling them, guys, just solve it. Something that hasn't changed for Vlad is just how much he cares about his team and the business and his customers. And I asked what advice he would have given to himself at the beginning if he could hop in a time machine and meet himself on the day he started ADOC. I would say trust common sense a lot. Common sense is not so common, but it is the biggest decision-making factor in all of my decisions. It's no matter how much I learn. And surround yourself by the best people you can. And the third, maybe, is don't worry as much things turn out well in the end, I would say. So you're constantly worried as a CEO. By the way, I'm super worried right now. So it's kind of, it's kind of part of the job. But like when I think back about a year ago, I was like, why was I so worried? Everything would turn out fine. To see some of ADOC's tech and watch the most mesmerizing GIFs on the internet, go to adoc.com. It's aidoc.com. Thanks for tuning in this week. As ever, if you want to listen to more episodes like this, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to help, leave us a five-star review or rating. Otherwise, catch me and the Squarepeg team in all the regular places. See you next week.